Yes. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagandBanner.com. This week on Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy, we're going to pick up our interview with Susan McDougall with part two of the conversation with this fascinating woman. If you heard last week's part one of this interview, you'll know we ended it on the day she found out she was being indicted. I was at work um, and uh, somebody, oh, uh, a reporter for ABC News called me and said, um, there's a indictment, a 20-page indictment with your name on it. So how long before you went to trial? ABC calls you, tells you you've been indicted. Now how long before you go to trial? By the time I went to trial, and I didn't go to jail for going to trial. I went to jail for refusing to testify. By that point, I was so happy to go to jail because I was being followed and filmed and yelled at everywhere I went. I couldn't do anything. My parents had cameras out in the front yard and they were elderly it was horrifying and I was so glad to be where no one could come and get me it was a relief the first jail I went to and I thought this is what it feels like to just be safe interesting let's talk about the trial you you go to trial what's kind of the first thing that happens character assassination David Hale who was David Hale and what part did he play in the investigation David Hale testified that Bill Clinton told him he needed some money. And the only way David Hale could help him with that was to make up some loans. He had a loan company, a federally backed loan company. The federal government would give him money to loan out at good interest rates for small businesses. It was an SBA loan. Oh, office. okay. So if you had a small business, you could go in and get a very low-rate loan to start this business. And David Hale was producing these loans, but only for members of his own family and for his friends. And his idea to save himself was, yes, I did that, and I also did it for Susan McDougall. I made a loan for her a very small interest rate, and that was supposed to go to Bill Clinton. That was the deal. Everybody knew it. Susan knew it. Bill Clinton knew it. I knew it. And it was all a lie. It was, oh. And it was all a proffer he made to save his own skin. That's exactly right. They had found out that he was making all of these loans, and they were lies. He was even making up names on the loans. The people didn't exist, and he was taking the money himself. He was going down big he time. Was he going, actually was the only person in the whole trial who was actually a crook. And he proffered he, and threw everybody else under the bus with lies. He found Justice Jim Johnson. Do you remember him? Yes. Told him the story and they concocted the whole thing. You were making loans? Well, hey, you were making loans and Bill Clinton got the money. Bill Clinton raised more money than any single political candidate in the history of the world really but he needed me to go make a loan with david hale a man i had never met in my entire life and for three hundred thousand dollars and take him that money that's what he, he needed to break the law and get me to break the law and we all knew it but he had more money raised than anyone ever in the history of the presidency he was known to be a fundraiser yeah, that's what he's known for. 
Yeah, that was the story. That was the story that I was supposed to say was true. And you said, no, I'm not going to do it. Well, I didn't know that for a long time. I mean, that took a while. It took David Hale getting indicted. It took David Hale giving him the story, saying, here it is. And the U.S. attorney at the time, this lovely woman, I didn't know her, but she was awfully lovely to me, went on television and said, this is a crock of nothing. It's a lie. I don't believe him. They took that on to a federal judge who said, yes, I believe this, and I believe we will start an investigation. So you, everybody's saying there's nothing there. You're going to get off. You're feeling pretty good about it. And then your ex-husband gets up there on the witness stand, and he throws you under the bus. Yeah, you're talking during the trial now mm-hmm. because this was a run-up to the trial oh. where they're trying to decide, are they guilty? Have they done something wrong? And they kept hiring people who said no. And finally, they hired Kenneth Starr, who oh. said, I think there's something here, and we need to pursue this. They finally find a judge who'll take it. They finally find Kenneth Starr who'll take it, who all have Republican ambitions to go higher up. They come down to Arkansas. Oh, we don't know this at the time. We're just ser- seriously wondering, and it's really the first time this is happening. You realize now we have seen a whole lot of this misinformation mm-hmm. in the public uh, arena. arena. And a lot of people willing to say anything. But at that time, I did not think that this was these were bad people or that they were out to get me. I just thought somebody has gotten this wrong. They don't realize that they didn't do anything wrong. I am not in the least thinking this is a conspiracy. You have to remember how innocent we all were back in those days before these huge conspiracy things had ever started. This is the beginning of the 24-hour news cycle and the sort of public spectacle of, you know. Being able to sell misinformation uh, to people rapidly and convincingly. You know, it's the birth of the Internet. Yeah, that was happening too. Yeah, yeah, the Internet was was 1995. Your trial is. I thank God every day there was no CNN. Every day. When I see these people being dragged through all of these reporters, and I think that could have been me, instead of that, I just was haunted and hounded by people with parabolic dishes on top of vans. (laughs) You go... Those are satellite dishes, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, whatever it is, it was not nice. The uh, So you go through this trial, you get to the end, you think you're going to walk free, they've ruined uh, Chris. No, no, don't? I don't. I, I get to the trial, I don't testify because I'm, there's no, nothing at all that they say I've done that's illegal. And then I'm found guilty. Yeah, so you think you're going to be okay. And then, oh, well. And then Jim McDougall gets on the stand. Yes. And the guy you have you know, tied your apron strings to that you think is a good guy that you have been taking care of for years. He gets up there and he's a little, he's a little, he's having one of his, he's decided to proffer because they found something on no, him. No, 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 no. Jim decides he's going to testify because he is really, uh, he is a good conversationalist. People like him. Unfortunately, it did not work that day. He really looked horrible. He looked like he was lying. Um, it, it was just bad. It was so bad that I wept after his testimony. I just left the courtroom, found some stairs, and wept. It was the saddest thing to see him having been reduced to that. 
which is really what you would call it. The battering, the spending all of our money, being penniless, everything we'd ever worked for was gone. The person that I had most trusted in my life that was brilliant and had always been a great Democrat and always cared about people is reduced to a liar, looking like the worst person in the world. And it broke my heart. It broke my heart to see him in that place. It still breaks your heart. It's terrible. It's what they did to him shouldn't have been done to anybody. What sticks out in your mind most about that time in trial? I was sitting next to Jim Guy's lawyer. He taught at a law school in Chicago. And every time they would say something, he'd lean over and whisper in my ear about how this was not good law or this was never going to. You know, it was just lovely. And I learned a lot from him in staying calm and believing that this was going to be okay. And he, he believed it too. He was older. I think he saved my life through that, just telling me, you know, and he would stand up and say, Your Honor, this isn't good law. This isn't even true in the law. So they're arguing something. And he would just argue and argue and argue. And I really loved him. Afterwards, you await sentencing. You're found guilty on four counts. You can't believe it. You're like, what? So you go to Claudia Riley's house in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, and Jim is also there waiting for sentencing. When we come back, sentencing and shackles. We're speaking with Miss Susan McDougall, the woman that wouldn't talk during the 1994 Whitewater trial. Still to come, Susan's interview with Diane Sawyer and Larry King, her sentencing and jail time, and why she chose contempt of court over talking. We'll be right back. Flagandbanner.com, your source for beautiful decorating ideas for your home or your business, and also very useful workplace items. For example, when you have construction of any kind, you can hide those ugly areas while keeping the public out with a custom single-sided mesh vinyl banner. These 9-ounce commercial-grade banners are perfect for high-wind areas, and they come in all shapes and sizes from flagandbanner.com. They're made in the USA, and if you need advice on how best to use them, call our experts. For your particular application or event, they can help. Here's the number, 1-800-445-0653. Or learn all about these custom single-sided mesh vinyl banners for your workplace at flagandbanner.com. You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy, and I'm speaking today with Miss Susan McDougall, defendant of the 1994 Whitewater trial and target of Kenneth Starr and Judge Susan Weber Wright's investigation. I went to the Capitol Hotel during the sentencing span, and my niece came up and ordered. We didn't even know what to order. She said, what what do we order? I said, "I, I don't know. I don't drink. She said, let's have whiskey sours. I saw that in a movie. I said, okay, that sounds good to me. So I'm sipping it. It's horrific. It's whiskey sour. Who drinks that? Mm -hmm. And at my sentencing, they brought up that they were watching me and that I was drinking. And I had put, you know, you have to fill out this thing. Don't drink. Don't smoke. Don't, you know, mess around. That I was a liar. They had seen me drinking. So petty. So needing something. Oh, I know. Yeah. So desperately needing something. We, we have been through the trial. We are now going to sentencing. And you're going to Claudia Riley's house in Arkadelphia, Arkansas to wait. I think there's a few months in there before they sentence you. And yes. Jim goes 
down and also it goes down and stays in her house that's lower than where you are it's kind of at the foot of the hill so you're with Claudia, the guest house the guest as house. claudia would say the guest house the and trailer you, as i would say but claudia the, called it the guest house the trailer <laughs> the trailer and while you're there can the star gang starts visiting him they're trying to make it palatable for him to plead guilty and to testify against clinton and they're bringing candy and uh I mean, it looked like the three wise men. They were like bearing gifts going in there. But now he's already been found guilty from the trial, though. So we're waiting, wait, awaiting sentencing. Yes. However, you can accept guilty, which was fine. But if you don't want to accept guilty and go to prison, you're going to have to give Appeal. them something. You're going to have to tell the story for them, and then they give you probation. Oh, so he's still... You're so naive. Me? Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no. Yeah, right. you're convicted, so you're facing a lot of time, right? Yeah. And they're going to ask for the maximum. They're going to come after you. And so he got very scared. Um, there was a phone call. He was talking to me about um, cooperating with the independent counsel. And I understood it because he was sick, and I didn't want him to go to prison, and... Um, so, and I cared about him. And I said, I get it. I understand what you're doing. And so um, he, I was at the guest house with him, and he said, listen to this. And he called them. And he said, um, I'm going to need a driver to go around. I don't have a, I'm not well enough to drive. I don't have my car anymore. And, the, and he, he looked at me and did a thumbs up. They had agreed to a car and driver. And he said, and I'll need money because I've spent everything I have defending myself. And he gave me a thumbs up. Money was included. And I will need a hospital prison because I'm ill. Not just a regular prison, but a place that has uh, good care for people, a federal prison. And he looked at me and he gave me a thumbs up. They had agreed. That's going to happen if, if I go to prison. And then he got this really funny look on his face. And when he hung up the phone, he said, you're not going to believe this. And I said, what? He said, Kenneth Starr is going to come to my sentencing. And he is going to stand there. He's going to stand up for me. And he's going to say that, like Saul on the road to Damascus, that you have had this blinding light from God, and you're going to tell the truth now. And that is why you've agreed to cooperate with the independent council, that you have had a conversion, a, a conversion from God. God has spoken to you. And blinded, you had been blinded, but now you can see. And actually, that was when I decided that I was never going to cooperate because that is taking a man's soul. There's no coming back from saying, yeah, I'm going to tell you that Bill Clinton stole a bunch of money to run for president, and I helped him do it, and Susan was in on it too probably. There's no telling what he had to agree to. You, you don't know what he's agreed to. You just know he's going to lie, and he's going to try to get himself out of trouble. And that was not the man I knew, ever. That was not him. They have broken him. They have reduced him. They have scared him, and he is sick. When I see what they have done to him, I hate them, and I tell myself that this is not going to be you ever, ever, whatever happens. 
I've never talked to the media. Uh, our decision was that um, there was no there was no crime, and that we should just let that play out. Not appear to be too worried about it or upset about it. I sat down one day in my infinite wisdom and said to myself, I would like to speak to a nice Southern girl who could get me, who could understand what I'm trying to say to her. And I thought, Diane Sawyer looks like a nice person. Well, I'll call her. And I called, and she took my phone call. Of course she did. Sure. And I decided that uh, my brother went up with me, and my brother is like, I mean, he's like Samson. He is so strong and so well-spoken, so handsome, that they all want to talk to him, that he comes with me. We go up there. And the guy shows up, this reporter that you're talking about, Chris, whatever. And he becomes part of the production team on this interview, which does not go well Mm. at all. And uh, she is not listening to me, and I'm not getting to say what I want to say. And, in fact, when it airs, it's all cut up to pieces, and I look like I've done, like I've, you know, taken money from babies. I mean, it's just horrible because I was still waiting to be sentenced. Right. I had to be careful. And a lot of people didn't think you should do it. A lot of people thought I shouldn't do it. Bill was very good. He stepped out in front of the cameras. That's my brother. And uh, pretty much just told them how it was going to go. And they stopped the cameras. But he was on camera, and I was on camera saying, you know, I can't talk about that. So it did look bad. Larry King called me, and he said, I saw that interview, and that is a crock. That's the worst interview I have ever seen. It is a total lie. You need to come on my show. I will not interrupt you. It's live. And you don't have to worry about being cut and being made to look guilty. Just come tell the truth to the people. And I mean, it wasn't two days later that he flew me out there. And I was on, I was at that desk on Larry King Live. People started calling. I started just telling the story like I'm telling you all today. And people started calling in and calling in. And it was, he said he'd never had a show where people were so calling in, angry, upset. One of the OIC called and said, listen, she just needs to talk to us. We can make this better. We can, you know, they're wanting to talk. And so uh, Pat and my brother started talking to this lady with the OIC. And when they came back and told me, I said, you two have lost your minds. No. What did she want you to do? She was going to make a deal. I was going to, you know, get probation, not have to go to jail. I was going to be vindicated, whatever the promises were. You know what happened to Jim McDougal and his promises, don't you? He's mm-hmm. dead. Yes. Yes. He died in jail. That's how they kept their promise to him. Yeah. So, no. But I didn't know that at the time. But I'm getting a little wiser and a little bit angrier than I was before. And I said no. And they both were so upset with me, my brother and Pat. Um, Pat cried. Cried and said, I'm begging you to take this offer from this lady. She wants to help you. She likes you. She saw you on Larry King Live. She really wants to. No. She wanted no. you to give some dirt on Clinton, yes. though, right? Yes. Lie it about would have finding been something. something. It would have been something. Selling so, your soul, as you said. I said no. And my brother said, um, so what's your plan? He's very action-oriented. I said, my plan is 
to uh, do whatever I have to do, take it, not complain about it, get through this, and live my life. So describe being taken out after the sentencing. Actually, I wasn't taken out. I walked out. And uh, you have to report back. They give you a date to come back after you're sentenced to go to jail. Yeah. You get to go home. I was out on bond or bail or on my own recognizance. So I walked out and a reporter came up and said, how do you feel? And I said, are you kidding me? And I, that's the only thing I said. I went home. I, I think I went to Claudia's, Claudia Riley's house, curled up in a fetal position and until she wouldn't let me anymore, which was probably about three hours later. She wanted me up and talking about it and working on it and processing it. She was not going to let me play the tragic part. You so talk cool. about, so you go to city jail the first night? When we see the picture of you walking out in shackles, which jail are you going to? That, I'm going to Faulkner County Jail. So you and that's the- a very funny story. I'm in the cell, and they decide that they are, um, they call me out, and they put the handcuffs on. First time in my life. And I'm thinking, I might need to, t- I'm, I, I might need to lie on somebody at this moment. Yeah. Because <laughs> I've never had handcuffs. And then they put a waist chain around, and they tie the handcuffs to that. So you can't move your hands at all, at all, not even to cover, to fall or something. Then they put those huge, heavy metal shackles on my ankles, and I'm standing there thinking, you know, Susan, you're not as strong as you thought you were. What are you doing? I mean, I had a moment of crisis right then. Then they brought these two great big guys from other cells, and they chained me to them. So the three of us are chained together in shackles, handcuffs and waist chains, and we're walking down a dark corridor in the federal building. No one's there. It's after hours. And I'm thinking, thank God no one's here to see this. This this would just be awful if people were hanging out, you know, and saw this. And... All you can hear is ching, 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 ching. You can hear the chains on the floor, like something out of Edgar Allan Poe. I get to the door. I'm the first in line, of course. Why? I don't know. The door opens. It's sunlight outside. It's dark in the building. And there are a billion people there with parabolic discs and vans. And as you say, satellites. God only knows how many people were. It it looked like a sea of people taking pictures and screaming, Susan, Susan, hey, Susan, blah, 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 Susan, blah. And the guy behind me says, God, what the hell did you do? He didn't even know. (laughs) No. And I, I started to smile. I thought that was kind of funny. What did I do? I don't, you know, kill somebody? So... I walked out to the van thinking, that's the funniest thing that's ever happened to me. This guy, who God knows what he's done, right? He's worried about what I've done. Anyway, it was it was a moment in time that let me see that I didn't have to play the tragic part, as Claudia would say. You are now at the Faulkner, Faulkner County Detention Center in Conway, Arkansas. What were the ladies doing when you got there? They were watching television, which it was me. starring in chains and they were all glued to the tv and they were like she's coming here oh oh my god that she's coming here we're gonna get to see her yeah 
And I come in, chink, 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 and they open the door, and there I am, and there I am. I mean, I'm seeing myself on television, and they're seeing me, and they're, like, going to the TV and watching me. And, um, my God, what an incredible bunch of people. Oh, my God, I love them. What was the game they played when you got there? Well, the first thing that happened was this little girl, really tiny young woman, came over to me, and she said, "Um, I was so scared when I first came here. And she said, that's my bed up on the wall. It has a window. Why don't you sleep there tonight? Oh. And everybody's on the floor sleeping on mattresses, people walking over you. There were so many people on the floor, you couldn't walk. You had to walk over people. And she gave up her bed. I just couldn't believe it. And I thought, what's happening? That's what I first thought. Where am I? And after that, these women came over and they started saying, man, I don't get it. You know, they told, they told me I didn't have to testify. I had the right not to. How come you're in jail for not testifying? They keep saying you had to testify. I said, it's kind of complicated, but when you go to the grand jury, they give you immunity, and you have to testify. And I didn't. And they said, man, that's, that ain't right. Because, <laughs> and they said, get over here. Didn't, didn't they tell you? And they were asking each other, hey, isn't that the truth? Isn't that, I got that right, right? You don't have to testify. That's in the Constitution. I said, it's a long story. But I, was in, oh, oh, I, I had to testify at the time, and I refused. I, st- I don't understand either. I mean, can't you plead the fifth? Um, you cannot because you have been given immunity and you can only plead the fifth if you're going to be, you know, the, um, I'm pleading the fifth amendment because I'm afraid I'm going to be, uh, charged with something. You've heard the people say the little yeah. line. Yeah. And, um, so if you're not going to be charged with something and you, you're being told we're going to give you immunity from any testimony that you give today, you have to testify or go to jail. They moved you to Carswell Federal Prison in Fort Worth, Texas. The only problem I had at Carswell was they um, they put me on the floor with people who were um, having psych- psychological problems, and um, it was violent. Violent? A violent floor because people people were fighting, and it was scary. All right, this begins... The beginning of diesel therapy. I had to look that up. This is the beginning of the torturous tactic by Kenneth Starr and Judge Susan Weber Wright called diesel therapy. It is a form of punishment in which prisoners are shackled and then transported for days or weeks. It has been described as the cruelest aspect of being a federal inmate. It has been alleged that some inmates are deliberately sent to incorrect destinations as an exercise of diesel therapy. I had to look that Good one up. for you. That is the best description of it I've ever had. Thank you, Wikipedia. Let me tell you the hard part for me. Okay. Is that your family doesn't know where you are. You've suddenly disappeared in the middle of the night. You've been calling them. They know where you are. They come visit on the weekend. My mother brought food for everybody. I mean, it was joyful to see my family. And I'm gone. They know not where. No one can tell them. And I'm on the road. How long before they find out? Well, they know I'm gone, but uh, when I get where I'm going, uh-huh. there's also a, prohibi- a prohibition against using the phone or writing anyone or anything for a long time. Oh, that is scary. I thought about writing like a, you know, travel guide. For jails. For jails. Oh, my God. Into seven. <laughs> I'd buy it. Yeah. 
Definitely make sure you rob a bank and that it's not a liquor store because a federal bank gets you in a nice, cushy bed and good food. Oh, my God. Fruit. I hadn't seen a fruit in forever, and I got fruit at Carswell. Um, Got to walk out on a running track. Yeah, it was a totally different experience. So that did not last long. I was thriving there. I was with all the Jewish women who had ever broken the law, which is about four. (laughs) And it was, I made, uh, you know, I was there for Christmas. Didn't get to see my family. That was when I was moved. They move you at holidays to make sure it's horribly painful on your family and they don't get to see you and you're miserable because it's Christmas. But I wasn't. I was making challah bread. With the Jewish ladies. <laughs> and uh, we we um, we did the menorah, and they prayed for me and blessed me, and it was lovely. I had never done a menorah at Christmas, and it was just, it was breathtaking to be in that place. So why did they move you? What I was their excuse sure they gave was, you? They heard I was with the Jewish ladies and baking challah bread, you know? It was... What was the excuse they gave you? This lady met me at the door when they brought me in. I was brought in in a private jet with, uh, and and uh, they came with like automatic weapons to pick me up at the airport from a private jet, like a drug lord. I mean, it was unbelievable. I get to the prison. I'm scared to death, completely. And this girl who's filling out my paperwork said, "Hey, could you be Jewish?" And I said, well, sure. And she said, yeah, it's good in here if you're Jewish. There's a few of us. I said, I'm in. Mark down Jewish. (laughs) (laughs) That's how that happened. (laughs) That lady was hooking me up. That's what that's called. She liked you right off the bat. She hooked me up. Well, they knew I was coming. It was all over television. Oh, yeah. And television is everywhere. That's all they have in jail. So they knew I was coming, and that lady got up there, and she said, I'm going to hook her up, and she did. Why are you taken out of Carswell Federal Prison and sent to Sybil Brand Institute? Because Sybil Brand is notoriously the hardest prison in America. You Um, said it was squalor. Oh, it was terrible. Well, I get to Sybil Brand. I don't know where I am. They just bring you. They don't really tell you where you are. You don't don't, know what city you're in? I know nothing. And my family doesn't know again where I am for months. So they're walking me down a row, like, and it looks like Rikers Island or something. You know, that island out in the middle of the water, not Rikers. What is the name of it? Anyway, it's just like that. Alcatraz. It has Alcatraz. Yeah. I've been there, and it is exactly the same. So there are metal doors, and there's two people in each behind each door. And I'm walking by, and there's a guard with me. And I said, hi. And they just kind of looked at me, and I got to the next cell. I said, hey, hi. And later, they told me, they said, we thought you were crazy because, I mean, you're coming into jail and you're like Miss America. You're waving at us. <laughs> yeah, you're waving going, hey, how are you guys? You know, good to see you, you know. And I said, well, I just wanted to be friendly, for God's sake. What's wrong with you all? I was so mad that they thought I was crazy. I'm just trying to be nice. Did you get to talk to them or did they put you in K-10 lockdown? No, no. In this one, in this deal, it was locked down for all of us. We were in cells. And I was in a single cell because I was a federal prisoner, and this was a state facility, and they couldn't just put me with anybody. So I had a single cell to myself in the middle, and then all down were people who had murdered people, down 
Do you get out to ever socialize? No, but they come to my cell. They let the other people out. Why don't they let you out? Because I'm a dangerous. They just wouldn't. So everybody else gets free time to come out of their cells but you? That is a true story. Yes. I would get out to shower, but they'd lock everybody up, and I'd have time to shower and get back in. And then after, I think the ACLU complained, I got to go in the basketball court by myself. They would let me out and have time to do that. I could not even see the chaplain. That was not allowed. That is the truth. Is that to make you crazy? Because I, I think like it's to make me crazy. I do. Is this the school, is Sybil Brand where your lawyer came to see you that kind of turned your turned your life around? He's kind of your savior, Mark Garagos. I had a breast lump, and um, they had released that to the press, which they're not supposed to do. And my mother and family found out, and they were they were so upset. They did they thought I would die in prison of breast cancer or something, you know. And the ACLU saw it and came to see me, and they said, "Susan McDougall, your attorney is here." And I said, "That's impossible. I don't, <laughs> I have, don't an have an attorney." attorney. <laughs> yeah, I, I learned. <laughs> yeah, I learned later on to say yes to everything that sounded good. Yeah. So I I went, and she said, "Listen, um, I know a guy." And he's great, and I think he'll take your case if you're interested. And um, she said, I, I really think it's horrible what they're doing to you. I said, yeah, yeah, I'd love to see him. So he shows up, and they said, Susan McDougall, your attorney's here. And I said, yes, and I went down there. He was impeccably dressed, and um, he said, I have a small firm. It's me and my dad and my brother. And he said, you know, we don't have a whole uh, – big firm that we can devote to this. But I'll tell you, if you want me to help you, I will. And I said, the only thing you have to promise me is that you won't you won't bargain me away. You won't do something that's going to bargain that I would testify or that something like that. That's the only thing I ask that you not do. And he said, I understand. So we agreed. And I called home, and everybody lost their minds. They said, what? What have you done? Yeah, they couldn't believe I was negotiating with an attorney in the, in the jail where I was, but it just was perfect, absolutely perfect. He, and he was, was fabulous. Oh, my gosh. He made mincemeat of them. He was one guy in a mom-and-dad pop store, and he took the OIC to school. I was never convicted or put in jail or nada again. Yeah. He came on the case, and it was over. So why did they move you to Twin Towers? They closed Sybil Brand. I was wondering about that. Yeah, yeah they closed it, was so, it. It was on a fault line in California was the excuse they used. We had an earthquake, and they all ran and left us in there. Oh, my oh God. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That is a true story. They ran like like scared rabbits, and we all just like, we can't see each other. We can just yell out of the, hey, are you guys in? Yeah, we're all here. I said, where did they go? Uh, they ran. I mean, and it's shaking, and it's moving, and uh, somebody is saying, the doors may open, you know, like in the Bible when there's the earthquake and all the prison, and Paul gets oh, released, yeah. and I'm like, Whoa. <laughs> like, I mean, when you're in my position, things like that sound real. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, okay, 
I'm ready. Let's all go together. And, um, yeah, so they closed it because that was we could have all been mushed in there. Yeah, you could have. So you go down to Twin Towers. Twin Towers was brand new. I was like the first prisoner in Twin Towers. Oh, okay. And it's scarier than anything else because it's very um, futuristic. You don't see anyone. People push a button and the door opens. People push a button and the door closes. It's cold. Food. Oh, oh. It looks like the future of the worst place you've ever been. And I do well with people. I like people, people like me, but there's no one. I have absolutely no one. And they've put me in a glass cell. And the guy from the civil brand said they've got a really good place for you. They're going to put you in a glass cell like Hannibal Lecter. They've, they're going to make it as hard as they possibly can. So I get there, and I'm in there, and on the post, there's a huge, you know, this place is enormous, huge thing. It says, if Susan McDougall speaks to anyone coming or going from her cell, she is not to be allowed out again. And that was signed, signed by the sheriff in Los Angeles County. And he later testified that that came from Kennestar and the OIC. Because I was speaking to people. I was okay. I was. They're like, we keep moving her around. She keeps making friends everywhere she goes. They put me in the one place. But that was not going to happen. So it is a sensory deprivation chamber. Absolutely. How long did you have to stay at there? How did you get out? The ACLU sued Kenneth Starr. And he was due to appear in court and answer for all of the moves and all of the way I was treated. And he sprung me and got me to go to the Metropolitan uh, Jail downtown in Los Angeles. See, the, he being Kenneth Starr of the ACL. He did not want to show up at that hearing because everybody knew what had been happening to me. And he did not want to sit in that chair and say, why was she sent there? Why did she go there? What is that about? We understand she was held in isolation. And they called me on the something. Somebody came by or something, and they said he doesn't want to go to court. He doesn't want to answer the suit by the ACLU. So because you're in isolation and because you're in this deprivation cell, we're going to win this case. And he doesn't want that. So he's transferring you. Uh, When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Miss Susan McDougall, the woman that wouldn't talk during the 1994 Whitewater trial. Still to come, Jim McDougall dies in jail. Susan McDougall heads back to court and back to jail, but eventually the truth comes out, vindication. And last, how she started over and what she's doing now. We'll be right back. Now that the world's beginning to open up again, it won't be long before you're involved in trade shows. You don't want to haul out the same old equipment you've been using for years. Upgrade your trade show displays with a visit to flagandbanner.com. You'll be amazed at the pop-up banner walls, the pillowcase banner walls, the retractable banner stands, lightweight banner walls, lightweight banner stands and tabletop stands, hanging banners, all the trade show accessories and hardware that flagandbanner.com has. They've been making custom items for trade shows since 1975. They really are the experts. Contact flagandbanner.com for a free custom quote. And don't bring the same old stuff to your next trade show. 
You're listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy. I'm speaking today with Miss Susan McDougall, defendant of the 1994 Whitewater Investigation and Trial and author of her book, The Woman That Wouldn't Talk. So you've been through, you've been in jail for a, a while now. You were at Sybil Brand Institute. We had to, you had to leave there because of an earthquake. Yes. <laughs> then you get moved to Twin Towers and you're in a uh, sensory depri- deprivation. Glass uh, cell glass cell and the aclu gets you out of there before you lose your mind and you now are moved to the metropolitan detention center by kenneth Starr, who's trying to save his skin um when did you learn that jim died in jail there jim died and father santo came to see me and he said i have really terrible news jim has died and i thought it was my brother and i started wailing And I kept saying, my poor mother, I'm here. Jim is dead. The world is over, you know. And he didn't know why I was screaming and crying so much because everybody was kind of mad at Jim for getting me into this in the first place. Jim McDougall, Yes, I mean, he was persona non grata by everyone who loved me, right? And um, I finally got that. And um, it it wasn't good because I had so hoped that one day we could talk about this and he could be forgiven. And he could go talk to you and other people and say, you know, they scared me into saying those lies. Mm-hmm. They frightened me. I didn't, none of it was true. And I wanted him to have that redemption, as you call it, my redemption tour. Mm-hmm. I wanted him to have that because he needed it. I didn't really need it that much. And he was dead, and that was never going to happen. He was never going to be redeemed. Uh, March the 6th, 1998, you get out of your civil contempt. It expired after 18 months. March the 7th, very next day, you begin a two-year whitewater sentencing that you had been appealing for this oh, whole yep, time. yep, yep. That's right. Uh, and they take you to the Oklahoma City Transfer Center, I believe, yes. to go to Pulaski County Met because you're going to go for a medical hearing for this lump in your breast. I had a medical hearing when I was there to see if they could continue to keep me in jail when I wasn't doing well, when I was not well yeah, physically. And I won that hearing. Yes. I got released. Yes. Yes. And I think this may have been when I cried in the book. Okay. Judge, Judge Howard said, take her out immediately because they found a lump in your breast. But then they also found you had scoliosis yeah. that was getting so bad. It had really deteriorated. So they, he, the judge immediately releases you and sends you home for 90 days to Camden, He said Arkansas. forthwith. He said, Marshals, do you understand me? I mean, forthwith. And, man, they jumped up and got me out of those handcuffs, and there I was, free as a bird. You haven't been out of jail in years. years. What did you think about all of that? You're out? Did you have any clothes? What did you do? I went and bought clothes. Looked pretty good. I've got pictures. <laughs> I'm pretty happy about that. I hadn't had real clothes on in forever. I refused to wear clothes to the courtroom because the other women didn't have them. And oh. I wasn't going to get dressed up if they couldn't get dressed oh. up. So I was mad. But now you got to go back and you got to be, you're now being tried for. No, I was in jail when they charged me again. I was in jail, and I was uh, had been there for a few years, and Pat and Mark come in, and they look like death warmed over. And they said, yeah, he's charged you criminal contempt. It's a criminal offense not to testify after you've been in civil contempt for yeah. so long. 
So the ju- everybody wanted to be on your uh, wanted to be on the jury. So the judge had to do some sort of jury nullification to keep because pe- everybody wanted to be on the jury. No, no, no. We had a bunch of uh, funny people though. We had a lady that dressed up in a Star Trek outfit and had a name that came from Star Trek. I mean, only in Little Rock, Arkansas. Yeah, really. Wow. We had some really funny people. Um, it was. Did she make it on the dry, on the? On she the, did. She oh. did. She had to. Yeah, it was pretty funny. Um, now, jury nullification is when you admit that you did what they say you did, and the jury still finds you innocent. Ah. Because am I guilty of contempt? Yes. Oh, yeah. I told them I'm pretty contemptuous. Yes. Of this whole thing. <laughs> yes. So jury nullification is when you say, I did this thing, and the jury said, we don't care. Yes. Yes. And that was fun. They said, they said, um, I don't know that this is enough. I wish we really could do more. We are so sick of Kenneth Starr in Arkansas. Yeah. He needs to go. Yes. Yeah, that's pretty much what the after story was from Uh, the jury. uh, They give this part, just, I don't know how you lived through this, but. Your uh, attorney, your uh, the OIC's lawyer, Mark Barrett, gave a vicious closing argument. I had made him angry by arguing with him, and not many people do that mm-hmm. when they're accused of a bunch of stuff and they want to, you know, have a nice trial and be a good girl. But I had had it, and I told him, I said, "You know what you're doing. You know who you are. You know what you've done. You know what you've done to me." And he was asking me questions, and I said. No, I want to talk about what you've done. And I was really just so bad. But I had been in jail, people. Forgive me, but I was a little angry at this point. And I just kept, and the judge admonished me. Again, you know, the first judge said he was going to put me in the cone of silence. They didn't have one of those in Little Rock. So he just threatened me with more jail time. And Mark said, that is not going to help her. At all. Or yeah. scare her. Yeah, that's not going to help you at all, really. Yeah. So I was telling him what I thought of the OIC. I said, Kenneth Starr, all of you know that you've made this up and it's not real and you've done this to me and you answer my questions. And so he was pretty angry. You can imagine. Most people don't try to make the prosecutor hate them. And he did. He was vicious. It was horrible. Terrible. And Mark, so Mark gets Mark gets his chance to get up, and he gets up and does a superb job. He brings in his witness. He calls witnesses from the first jury trial, the first Whitewater one, and says, "Did you Let know me, this about them?" Yeah, yes. He not only did that. The really fun part of that, and what would make a great movie, is he gets prison people from every jail and place I've been. Not prison, jail people, detention people from everywhere. Puts him on the stand and says, tell us about Susan McDougal. McDougal. She's here for uh, contempt of court. Is that how you experienced Susan McDougal? And they said, no, we saw her pray with the women there. We saw her, you know, she took a vote to, to see what TV program we should all watch so that there was no fighting. You know, when Susan McDougal was there, there was no fighting. They were just voting and dancing and, I mean, I sat there in the courtroom going, this is the coolest thing ever. Because I had been in these places with people who were hurting. 
and who were not helped and who needed a break. And it changed my life forever. And then I had people get up and document what they saw and how they saw it and what happened. And how you changed their life. It was just the great. These are the guards. These are not the women. These are the people watching us in there. So what happened? What happened to that trial? Completely. I was was let go. I was out. Did you just walk out? I walked out. Had a party. Never went back to jail again. Never went. (laughs) No, never went back to jail. Not accused of anything. I don't think I have a parking ticket. I'm good. You are listening to Up In Your Business with me, Carrie McCoy. I'm speaking today with Miss Susan McDougal, defendant in the 1994 Whitewater Investigation and Trial and author of her book, The Woman That Wouldn't Talk. Finally, vindication. After six years, you are free. And I love this quote. You said, we took on the most powerful prosecution in the country, an organization with unlimited budget and incredible resources, and beat them. It's President Clinton's last day in office. You are watching TV, and what happens? All of a sudden, they uh, a news announcer says, word of pardons has come in, and I have not applied for a pardon because I don't want to be pardoned. I'm mad about it, and I want to keep it as a sign of my struggle. I have not applied. But the person says, um, great news, uh, so-and-so has been pardoned, so-and-so has been pardoned, and... The very last thing, after a bunch of people, they say, and Susan McDougall has been pardoned. And we just go crazy. <laughs> We're just going crazy. And the doorbell rings. And it's the world. It's every news station. The parabolic discs are back. Everybody's there. It was unbelievable. It was just such a celebration. We hadn't asked for it, and we got it. I was asked to give speeches all over America to law groups and to people who are advocating for people in jail. I got to raise money for women who were in jail. I mean, after I left jail was the best time of my life to be loved and cared for and people being kind to me. It was amazing. Uh, you came back to Arkansas. My mom and dad were sick. My, my dad, um, my mom had a heart attack and my dad had had a stroke. And I had a lot of guilt. I felt like it was because of me. I felt like they were sick because of what had happened. And it wasn't fair to them. I mean, they really hadn't asked for it, had they? And so I just said, I'm going home. I'm going to take care of them. And and I said, you know, this is how I want to live my life right now. This is it. I want to give this time to them. And I want to be with them. And I was with them till they died. Um, One of the great things that I got asked to do during that time was to speak to... um, an international group of chaplains, which was um, the College of Pastoral Supervision and Psychotherapy. And they are an accrediting body for chaplains around the world, huge organization. And I went to speak to them. And they asked me about my time in jail and what that was like. And I got to talk about the inequities of poor people and uh, people who don't have a voice and people who can't afford a lawyer and what happens to them as opposed to people who have help like I did and families that support you and they um, at the end of it someone from UAMS which I'd never met walked over to me and he said what do you plan to do with your life and I said well I'd like to raise money for women in jail and I'd like to do some jail work you know with women and help them out he said well do you know what you're doing and I said no and he said we can help you with that 
He said, why don't you come and train to be a chaplain, and you'll know exactly what to do to help people. And I said, I'm in. So I came and I studied at UAMS. I decided that that was what I wanted to do because it was a lot like what I had been doing with the women in jail. So are you a chaplain at UAMS or are you a chaplain for jail? No, I was a chaplain at UMS for a long time. I still did some jail things, but I now am the head of the department. Whoa, go Susan. I train chaplains now. You train chaplains. And they are the best people in the world. I have a job where really nice people who don't care about making any money because they don't come to UMS to learn how to love people, and I get to train them how to do that. And it is the best job ever in the entire world. Can't get any better than that. Thank you so much for coming to join me. I have a gift for you. Well, thank you for asking me. You're awfully nice. And and you've been so supportive of me through this long journey of a very crazy life. And thank you a lot. You're welcome. Everybody needs to read your book. Absolutely. The the Woman That Wouldn't Talk. It's available on Amazon.com. Um, look, I've got you a disc. That- Is that my jail trip? Uh-huh, uh-huh. You are so bad. You, you are it. such a bad woman. You guessed I, it. How can I not know I was in jail there? I'm looking at these flags. Well, one of them. She Mexico. has a stand of flags that represents every jail I was in. I want you people to know her sense of humor. Okay. Yep. Funny you should ask. <laughs> yes. Susan, I'm so impressed that you recognized it on at, right off the bat. Well, absolutely love it. Thank it gives you. me a chance to talk about it good. and that's a promise i made oh. that i would be their voice that's good thanks so much you're welcome susan in closing to our listeners thank you for spending time with us we hope you've heard or learned something that's been inspiring or enlightening and that it whatever it is will help you up your business your independence or your life i'm carrie mccoy and i'll see you next time on up in your business you've been listening to up in your business with carrie mccoy For links to resources you heard discussed on today's show, go to flagandbanner.com, select radio, and choose today's guest. If you'd like to sponsor this show or any show, email me, Gray, that's G-R-A-Y at flagandbanner.com. Stay informed of exciting upcoming guests by subscribing to our YouTube channel or podcast wherever you'd like to listen. Carrie's goal is simple, to help you live the American dream.